This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. But what does that mean when I say weakness is strength and apply it to what we've talked about today? What, what does that mean to you? To me, what comes to mind immediately is people, A, they don't aren't willing to be honest with themselves about what they're bad at. And B, they're they're afraid to fail. And like it it seems it's very condensed, like the story we've had, like that seven or eight years. And I'm proud of the things I did. You know, I was there when Hook and Nomad started. I was part of that. I've done some really cool stuff, but I failed a lot. And I think that people play it too conservative and they're not willing to fail. And to me, I'm more interested in how did you pivot? Like, okay, well, that didn't work. What are we going to do different about it? I don't care that you failed. That's fine. What's unacceptable to me is like, okay, well, we tried to do this thing and it sucked. And if we keep doing the same thing again, like then we do suck in fact. So I'm, I'm like <laughs> obsessively interested in how do we pivot and make it better? What's going on, everybody? We have a great podcast for you today. Paul Bork is one of the most interesting anglers that I've had a chance to talk to in quite some time. Paul is on his way down to Key Largo. He's uh, driving in the truck. So we did have some audio issues on this one. We have stitched them together the best we possibly can. But if it does get a little squirrely at times, it's because he's going through a, a bad area. But we stitched it together. We made this into a two-parter because it was so interesting. And uh, here comes part one with Paul Bork. I'm Paul Bork, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Paul, what's going on today? Man, I am actually driving your way. I just passed into Florida heading towards the Keys to do some fishing, so life nice. is good. Do you do that every year, or what, what's your uh, your familiarity with the Keys? Do you go down there often? I do. So I, this is actually the first time I've taken the family on vacation down there, but I've been down there a bunch for various work things, filming and stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into. And then, honestly, any chance I get to go to the Keys, I go just because it's, you know, who doesn't <laughs> want to go fish there? And, you know, over the years, it's all combinations of red bones and tournaments and filming and just generally sneaking away to have varying levels of success, chasing the standard stuff, bonefish and tarpon and permit, and whatever, whatever we can get into. Nice. And what about this trip? What, what's your plan this trip with the family? So I actually have, I've been restoring the sea craft, this little boat I've got center console. So my goal with them is honestly, I've got a 13 year old and a nine year old just to get them out on the boat, fish the reef, just let them hang out, make some decisions, pull on some fish. So I kind of like it. I mean, I like, That'd I like those great. other species and too, but you know, sometimes you just want to pull on some snapper and have fun with the kids. So for sure. Yeah, man. And what a great place. You're headed to Key Largo. I am. Yeah. A friend of mine has a house there and he's been. He's asked me a few times to come down and I've always been super busy and we've not really been anywhere in the last couple of years. So I said, you know what? I'm going to come down. If not now, then when let's do it. That's awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, this time of the year and in that area, it's also a great time to get in the water. So I hope uh, you got a mask and snorkel for everybody. And, and there's some incredible places to, to snorkel and, and uh, see all kinds of stuff up there. That's the plan. We'll see how it goes. 
Right on. So, Paul, we got a mutual friend, Jamie Caldwell. He's told me a ton about you, and and uh, certainly I know a little bit about you myself. But you've got a very, very interesting background from uh, Team USA fly fishing to being a coach there, guiding, um, drift media. That's really cool. And um, also, somehow, you find time to, to be a police officer, even if it's uh, part-time. I don't know if you're still doing that now, but... Um, Man, you've uh, you got a lot of stuff going on, and all of it at a very, very high level. How uh, how do you manage to to do that all with a family and everything else? You know, it sounds it's hard to describe. It sounds more complicated than it really is. So, the policing <laughs> thing, like I do, still work part time, but honestly, I don't work that much anymore. I just keep all my certifications up. I still work a little bit, like. You know, I've done that 15 years now and I've sweated enough and done enough push-ups. I'm just not going to let that go away. So that's pretty easy. <laughs> um, the Team USA stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into, like I'm not competing actively anymore. I'm, I'm really just fishing and kind of hanging out. So that was more of a phase. It was awesome. I'm still fishing, still fly fishing too. But that was kind of a phase of time that I did that stuff and uh, don't don't really do it anymore. I, I will fish a couple of like, you know, charity tournaments or whatever it is, but the amount of, and you know this, I mean, you've got a long competitive background too, but the amount of energy it takes to, to be, to win, you know, is just tremendous. And, you know, as I had an eight-year-old growing up, I was like, I think, I think I'd rather look back in 20 years and think about trips to Key Largo than, you know, more tournaments for the time being. Yeah. I don't know that, I don't know that you can be a part-time competitive angler in any that whether that's bass fishing or or fly fishing or whatever, I mean it it really is all consuming and um, it really I, I don't know. I mean when I decided that I wasn't going to be doing any tournaments anymore it was when you know there are other so many other things pulling pulling my time away from it and it's like man, first of all that deserves all of your time because it is so competitive and the people that you're going up against are. They are putting everything they've got into it. And if you're not able to, I mean, maybe you might have a good showing every now and then, but for the most part, it's that's a very competitive thing. I don't care what fish you're fishing for or what tournament trail you're on or or what type of fly of, of fishing rods in your hand. There there are people out there that are incredibly serious about it. So that's uh that's I, th- I think that's admirable that you want to do that with your with your kids because um Believe me, I just had a wedding this weekend for my oldest son, and um, time goes by so fast. I mean, literally, that was that was my takeaway from the from the wedding. Is everybody's asking like, "Oh, are, are, you're so proud of your son?" Yeah, I'm so proud of him. But my takeaway is that it seems like literally seems like yesterday that I was you know taking him snapper fishing and catching his <clears throat> catching his first fish ever. So enjoy it while you can, man. Take in every every second. You know, I remember growing up, everyone's like, oh, time. You know, I felt like I couldn't get stuff done fast enough. And maybe I'm just mm-hmm. getting old, but you're absolutely right. It's like, I feel like, you know, I look back even on the, you know, the tournament stuff. I was like, man, that was four, five, six, seven years of history. And it feels like yesterday. A funny story I actually got. I haven't really thought, we'll get into it, I'm sure, later. I haven't super thought about competing again in a while. I, I quit really competing heavily in around 2017 or 18. And uh, I got a call last uh, week or two ago asking if I'd be interested in taking the captain position of the U.S. adult fly fishing team, which I didn't have time Whoa. to do. And But I, I was honored. <clears throat> you know, those guys are the best fly anglers I know. But I haven't told anyone this, but I've had a little bit of a fire that I haven't had in quite some time. So I've been kind of sniffing around a little bit and just looking at, you know, what do regionals look like? Like, what is the landscape? And, you know, never say never. We'll see how it goes. But Never say never. Well, about the uh, – let's let's talk about the uh, Team USA and, you know, how you started fly fishing and getting into the sport and, and how it led to uh, competing at, at really the highest level internationally. Sure. Um, how did that happen? Man, trying to make a long story short. So fly <laughs> fishing, uh, I'll abbreviate some of this, but – Growing up, I grew up in uh, the Western North Carolina, so on the Nantahala River and the Hiawassee River area, which you were from Chattanooga, is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, so that's not, right. Not fish the Hawassi a ton. Yeah, super yeah, good. I didn't fish the Nantahala as much, but uh, the Hawassi, that was kind of my home home river. Yeah, very similar setup, like freestone, wild rainbows, pretty tough. Uh, but when you get it right, they reward you. So I wanted to fish. I love fishing. I always grew up fishing. I grew up as a fan of bass fishing. And I watched, you know, on TNN, I watched Larry Dahlberg hunt for big fish. I watched Flip. I watched Jose. I watched the Bassmasters. That was what, what we had. And I wanted to fly fish because I live in the Smokies and it's bass or trout. And that's pretty much it. I had a buddy mm-hmm. of mine, Gordon Vanderpool, who's a guide. And he says, hey, uh, have you ever heard of competitive fly fishing? I said, no, not really. I, to be honest, n- very few people know this. I actually took fly fishing as a college credit. It was like, it was like art history or fly fishing as a PE. So I took What, it, what college did you go to? Uh, Southwestern er, and Western okay. Carolina University. So Western, yeah, Western Carolina. Yeah, yeah right there. I know, the that, I know that university. Yep, right on Su- the Tuckasegee. Super fun. So fast forward to the Tuckasegee, actually. I'm out there fishing. I'm however old I am, 19 or so. And I, I'd grown up fishing spinners and whatnot. And at, at that point, I felt like it was a disadvantage because I, I, I grew up with a single mom. Like I didn't have anybody showing me anything. And I was, you know, a little, little felt like everyone else had it easy. But long story short, I found out that I actually was teaching myself my own style, which would come back around later, which we'll get to. But I go up to this guy and he's catching fish on an Elk Caracatus in the Tuckasegee. I'll never forget this. I'm not catching anything, obviously. I don't know how to cast. I don't know anything. And I go up to the guy and I say, hey, uh, what do you, you know, 21 questions. What are you fishing? Why are you throwing it? What not? What's that liquid? What's your favorite tippet? All these things. And the guy tells me, son, you're just going to have to put your time in. I remember thinking, well, <laughs> I am putting my time in. That's why I'm here. You know, it's Saturday. Like, I'm not out drinking. Like, I'm out trying to get better at this thing. And it made a big impression on me. And I said, if I can ever get good enough at this thing, to share something with somebody, I will never not give them the time of day. So I fast forward, I, I start fly fishing and, you know, exploring all of our, you know, the area, the Smoky Mountain greater areas mm-hmm. just polluted with trout. And I meet this guy, Gordon, and I know he's good. He's from Pennsylvania. I'd read that Pennsylvania and all these spring creeks were good. So I just by default assumed that this guy was good, which he is one of the best. And he says, hey, you ever thought about competitive fly fishing? And honest to God, my first instinct was that sounds really dumb. I told him that. I said, why would I do that? Like, what? I don't, I don't even understand. I didn't even know there was such a thing. He says, well, I want you to try it. There's this thing where there's a casting competition. And based on where you fill in, uh, then you get to compete in this big tournament. And you can win $5,000. And I was like, $5,000 for fishing? It's like, I'm interested. So we go and we start this North. There's this North Carolina fly fishing team. And I go to the first tournament. I think I finished like second or third. I was like, hey, you know, maybe I know something. I don't know. I didn't know what I knew. I didn't really fish with anyone else. So I go to the very next tournament, which was, I think, on the South Holston River or something. I finished Mm. second to dead last. And that's when I was (laughs) in. I was like, there's 28 guys that know something that I don't know. And it was, to me, it was hard to describe. I think you'd understand it, but it wasn't. It's not like I'm super competitive. It's not like I completely get off on winning. I just wanted to know where I was at. Like I wanted to know if I was getting better. And the only way to get better is to put yourself, put it on the line against someone else. Like, that's it. So for me, I, I looked at it as like a, a litmus test to see, like, is this time I'm putting in improving my game? If I catch 100 mm-hmm. fish in a day and you catch 300, well, I'm not doing as good as I thought. So... For me, right. like that, that losing experience was, gosh, probably the thing that I was like, all right, I want to know what it was. And I remember uh, casting, practicing casting, and um, there's like a 25, a 35, and a 55-foot target, a roll cast, and then a distance cast with a five weight. I couldn't even, I promise you, I couldn't even hit the 25-foot target. Because all I ever fished <laughs> was small streams. I didn't have to. Yeah, you didn't need to. I didn't need to. So I remember that's when kind of my interest in casting got, I got really involved, um, started watching. I know you competed and did super well in some of that early ESPN game stuff and started following like, you know, the Ray Jeffs and Rick Hartman and Jerry Seam and all these kind of OG guys that were hammers casting. And that ultimately led to, which I'm sure we'll get into like the casting federation stuff and 
getting them MCI and all that business. But at the time, it was just if I can't hit these targets, like I'm not going to get to pick my water. I'm not going to be able to win that five grand. I need that money. So that's that's how it started. So how did you how did you um, get better at casting? So Gordon knew how to cast, and he was a is he's a guide in the area. Gordon Vanderpool, tremendous fisherman, mm-hmm. one of my close friends. And he, he was not a Federation guy yet, so he wasn't, like, teaching the language. But he yeah. had read, uh, which was an Al Kite thing, hey, if you just stop your rod tip high, you can throw a tighter loop. So I remember him telling me, just stop your rod tip high. And I did that, dunk, and I threw a tight loop, and I felt it, and it all kind of clicked. And I was like, wow, like, one sentence, one simple piece of instruction just changed my life, like, literally. So I said, well, what else is out there? So hmm. I dove into it. We had a guy locally named Mac Brown, who's a famous casting guy, wrote a book called Casting Angles. Very, very, very like savantly intelligent guy. And I just reached out to him like anybody else. It was like, you know, way more than me. I know nothing. I want to talk to you. And, you know, that kind of started that. But honestly, I would go out uh, probably two or three days a week with Gordon after work or on my days off and put out rings in the field and just start casting. And I was interested in, and you'll know this, like I may misquote this, but I know for a fact, cause I remember this from 15 years ago, you threw a five way cast at one of the best of the West or something that was over 130 feet. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And that I you're a historian, that. man. I'm a nerd. That's that's what I know. I, I know you're a historian. I listened to some of your guy jeans oh, podcast yeah. and I was really yeah. surprised at, at how much um, kind of weird knowledge you have about fishing and how and, and it, it, you, you have obviously scoured the Internet and scoured um, every, you know, fishing is one of the most written about sports ever. And uh, there's so many books out there. It goes way back into the 1800s. And, oh, yeah. and you've obviously read a lot of them. And for you to read that I did that, you've scoured the internet. <laughs> you scoured the internet. But yes, that did happen. For anybody listening, like I know, I don't know if people consider you a fly fisherman. A lot of people don't consider me a fly fisherman. But to honestly throw 130 feet on a tape in a tournament, I think very 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 few people that fly fish can do it so i was looking at who did that what were they studying you got to think like so i grew up you know my father was killed before i was born in a car crash so i don't have a chip on my shoulder about it. it's just life but i didn't really grow up with anyone saying oh here's you know here's how fishing works i just had to figure this stuff out so i figured out this way yeah. like i had this obsessive it's probably some add hyper focus but i had a way to find the knowledge like i will get the information and at that point in my life, it was casting. But yeah, I just dug into it and wanted to, I mean, you know, this, this sounds, honestly, if, if I examine it, it's ego. You know, I'm 24. I want to throw a bomb cast. So did you. And so did everyone else there. So yeah. you know, I wanted to be able to get that, get it done. Cause that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And we had, you know, I remember Rick Hartman came out and fished that tournament. Eugene Schuler was a good caster. He did it. There was a lot of guys around here that were really good. So but it's all, you know, it's all I thought about. And that, that ultimately, ultimately led to me going out and kind of soliciting the national championships to come to Cherokee, which was in 2011. Um, I did not make the U.S. team that year. I ended up making it later in Oregon a year or two later. Um, but funny story, that was actually the first time I ever filmed anything, too. I said, I'd really love to hmm. document this fly fishing team USA thing coming to Cherokee, my home water. I'm proud of where I grew up. I think it's awesome. Great fishing. So I didn't know anything. I literally just started Googling, like, how does this work? And I shot a DVD and filmed and documented the whole tournament and uh, recruited a couple of my friends. Kind of, uh, how was that? So were you, uh, were, were, I mean, you were fishing and you're trying to film it. And you're trying to fish competitively, yep. which is incredibly difficult to, to be thinking about this. I mean, on our TV show, I make sure that I have to hire people that are so much better than me that, that I don't even worry about what's going on in that boat, right? Like if I had to worry about, okay, is he pointing the camera in the right – It did is it recording? Like is, is he got the right lens on there? All those things. Like he's shooting into the light. I hope he knows what he's doing. Um, 
you would, I would never catch anything, right? So I have to just hire people that are so good that I don't have to worry about that. And and if something happens, they document it. But how does it work when you're when you really don't know what you're doing and uh, and you're trying to you know win a, a fishing competition? That seems really difficult. Maybe that's why you didn't make it that year. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I mean, I know that kind of like self-sacrificing. My story wasn't the story of the tournament. Like I felt like the star was the area. I was proud that the the tournament came to my area. So I got yeah. some help from Tucker and another girl that was working at Tucker went to Western Carolina as well. And the girl and his uh Shannon, she was a film major. So I just I don't know, we just kinda like anything. Like we set a mission, we talk about it at night, we give everyone their marching orders and off they go. And I got filmed a little bit, but it wasn't that bad. I, I don't know if I do it now. I, I think the reason it works, I didn't know anything. Like I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but now I film, geez, I don't film much anymore. Like I'm working, which we'll get into for black rifle, but for 10 years, all I did was film. So in hindsight, yeah, maybe not that maybe I could have shelf that one, but I got the DVD and it it's did. cool. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So um, when you when you were working on your casting and you're going to these these different competitions and there's distance casting and all that, I found it, you know, the same th kind of thing was happening to me. I'm self-taught totally. I didn't really have any access to to anyone. Um, maybe I did, but I didn't know where to find them. And there wasn't an internet at that time. So really just a lot of time uh, literally casting wind knots in the fly line before I uh, knew anything. I mean, still didn't really know anything for a long time. And, uh, then one day somebody told me, they're like, Oh, you're a pretty good caster. I was like, really? I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I'm like the worst caster there is. Um, but then, you know, some, somewhere along the line, you see somebody that's really good and maybe you don't even talk to them or whatever, but you can just see them and you're like, Oh, that's what you're supposed to be doing. I okay. I kind of get it a little bit. And then when you go into those competitions, um, you know, one of the guys that I have always thought has the most beautiful cast and is technically one of the best casters I've ever seen is Brian O'Keefe. I don't know if you've ever seen him cast or not, but he okay. he used to be in those best of the West casting competitions and he was straight overhead and straight down and just straight overhead and straight down, and he would bomb these things. I mean, perfect textbook. And I'm just watching him cast. And, you know, Ray Jeff's there and all those kind of people too. But Brian O'Keefe, to me, when, when I was thinking, if, if what do I want my cast to look like? That right there. That guy was so good. And just watching him cast made me so much better. You have so many people that, that like, talk about, uh, tournaments or or fishing competitions or whatever, kind of in a bad light. But for me, um, it was always about this incredible exponential learning that would take place. Win, lose, draw, don't catch anything, whatever. I would come away from whatever fishing tournament it was with so much more knowledge than I had before I got into it. It was just incredible. I don't know if it sounds kind of like that's that's your experience as well. It was, and it was the most exciting thing for me, like with Josh Stevens, one of my mentors, first guy to make the U.S. team. We would get done with these North Carolina fly fishing team practices, and he'd show me his flies, his leader, where he caught them. So to me, it was like I was honored. It sounds cheesy, but I was honored to get access to what I thought and still believe to be some of the finest fly fishermen I've ever fished with. And that, that was mm -hmm. that exponential learning curve. It's like I'm – you know, it's like anything else. If you could put yourself in front of those guys constantly with an open forum, we had no option but to get really, really good really quickly. Um, so it was, I mean, it was tremendous. It was all the things and some of the best stuff in the world's not written about in magazines. And that's just the facts. Like there's great intrinsic knowledge that you have to be there for. 
I was hoping you were just going to drop bombs on what the most important things in the world that aren't written about are. Uh, but, I could um, do that. Then you, you said want, intrinsic I'll you, knowledge. I give you. I'll give <laughs> yeah. you one of them. I want to know. All right. Okay. So, one of my growing up, one of my favorite people on TV was Larry Dahlberg, Hunt for Big Fish, and Legend. I really, really dug that the guy built everything into like tactics, mechanics, and strategies, and and he just caught big fish like. So long story short, I end up befriending Larry. We're, we're good friends. I consider him a friend and a mentor. And Larry will tell you that, uh, you know, a big fish, the biggest fish in the area, eats when his body temperature is the same as that of the water. Hmm. He knows that through. Really? He, he was studying pike. and He would watch these pike come up on these flats and, you know, hang out. And then they would all move at the same time to go eat Cisco's or whatever it is, but that got explained to me actually with Blaine chocolate, you know, Blaine probably, or yeah. Blaine, yeah. me, Blaine, been on here. me, Blaine and Larry in a cabin. And Larry explained that in depth and, uh, over about an hour with examples. And that was, you know, life changing. And it applies to almost everything I've done with the exception of, you know, maybe a tuna fish. Cause that, that fish can adjust his body temperature and a few more, it also doesn't apply at the equator because that's uh, always hot water. So that's more about mm. a water level thing. But there's there's one of the tidbits that are tremendous. And then I guess the other. So was, oh, go ahead. was he taking was he taking the fish's temperature when he was catching it immediately? And then how would he know? I mean, how, how would you know, like when you when you when a fish isn't eating? How would he know what the, the temperature was? Because obviously he's catching fish and taking their temperature. That all makes sense. But how would you know what's going on when they're, when they're not on the feed? So he sat, he saw these fish come in this lake and he was sitting on a ladder. There were pike and he noticed they were all sitting there. So he said he could shake a jig in front of these pike and make them eat. And a fish doesn't rest. So the thing where we kind of wake up groggy and then we kind of get going, mm -hmm. the fish doesn't have that in their brain. They're either at rest or awake. So they can go from at rest to awake instantly. So once the fish woke up, he could catch them and he'd thermometer the fish. And what he found was those fish were staging, if you will, and they were colder or warmer, but typically colder than mm -hmm. the water. And then once they started to move up to feed, um, they were the same temperature because obviously caught them. And a quick note in practice, I'll tell you the first time it ever clicked for me, and you'll appreciate this. So I'm in Louisiana fishing for redfish, and there's a big bay. And I'm pulling down the bank in the water. I don't remember exactly, but let's say it's 75 degrees. So I pay attention. I'm pulling, pulling, pulling. For the record, I'm not a redfish expert. I live in eight and a half hours from the ocean. But digressing, I'm looking for these redfish. I'm with Larry. And... We go into this bay. I make a right turn into a bay. And as I turn into the bay, there's a big oyster shell bar hard spot that comes out. And I'm like, oh, 100%. They're going to be there. It's like they're, they're not there. So I, I go into the bay and I see mullet flipping around. So in my brain, I'm a bait guy. Like I'm not a bass expert, but I really study what bass eat. I'm not a trout expert, but I'm really keen on what they eat, right? So I'm like, all right, mullet's in mm -hmm. here. We're going to catch these redfish. So I go into the bay. The water is like 82. I do not catch the redfish. I back out of the bay until the water stays 75 degrees consistently. I think in my head, they're probably staging, waiting to go into the shallow water. What warms up quicker? Mullet. Certainly faster than the 40-inch redfish. So I back out and we catch them. Good. Big ones. So then we sniff around some other places. Doesn't happen. We go back. And then as I'm leading back into the bay, the water's 80 all the way back. Well, now there's that consistency. It's stabilized. I know for a fact those fish are going to be on that bait. I pull right past all the good-looking stuff, quote-unquote, go to the bay, and they're on those mullet catching them. We're catching them. And I remember talking to Larry about it and explaining what I saw, and he was kind of like, ding, light bulb. And I was like, that was the first time wow. I saw it work. And the, they weren't guppies. Like, they were seriously big ones. So, yeah, you know, it started clicking for me, and then I started applying it all over, honestly, even offshore, all kinds of places. And sometimes you strike out, but it's pretty interesting to pay attention to. Wow. That's really cool. And now we have all the sea surface temperature maps and everything else that all that information that you can get. I, I honestly, with all the fishing that I've done, I've never really, really thought about that, but 
Larry Dahlberg knows stuff. I can tell you that. Unbelievable. That has has really put a, a scientific spin on it, um, and and really is is uh, is quite good, and always has been. He's he's legendary, man. That's that's cool that you get to spend that much kind of time with him. Um, tell me about uh, going from being you uh, a Team USA fly angler to being a coach sure. for the youth team. So I was fishing on the adult team and I'd say being honest, I was probably like a middle of the pack USA angler. Like I didn't do the world's thing. I, I could have my moments. Um, but you know, the international competition, I just didn't have the experience there yet. And, uh, I was helping with the youth team. Lance Wilt, uh, was coaching it at the time. George Daniel had been around and a few other, other people. Well, Lance was leaving right when we were going to France, which would have been around 2000, I don't even remember, 12 or something. And they mm -hmm. said, do you want to be the head coach? And I said, uh, yeah, I mean, I, did I really think I was ready? Frankly, no, but there was nobody else but me. And I thought, well, never been to France. Like, we'll see how this goes. So I, there's actually a story to that, which I'll get into that's interesting. So the most important thing I ever learned in fly fishing came from that trip. And I'll, I'll tell you the hmm. story. It literally changed my life and set the track record or set the course for what would be, which I'm proud of. Like we had never won many championships. I think Norm won an individual medal, Moctima, Jeff Courier had won one in, or in uh, Jackson Hole in 90, whatever that was, seven or eight. Yeah. Uh, but we, we hadn't consistently won. And then the youth team was able to win a bunch, four, three, four in a row. So but I'll get to that. So we go to France and I'm studying, I'm studying everything I can about France and grayling and just being a nerd. Like I always am just fully immersed in it. And I start reading about this, this coach, Jan Ostier, and he was a French coach, very, very decorated. And for perspective, for anybody listening in America, we have it made. You can go to the Tetons or the Smoky Mountain National Park and you can walk until you fall over and never see another person and have all the trout you want to catch. It's public water. And I'm thankful everyone is for that. In Europe, it's not that way. So if you want to get on certain sections of water, you have to be part of a club. But what happens if 20 dudes get part of a club? They compete because we're dudes. It's just how it is. So a lot of these clubs and these national teams came from club water so people could have access to it, which is fine. But it does mean friends that fish together and highly pressured fish. So we'll keep that in our head. So I hear about this guy, Jan Ostier, and they say he is the best that ever did it. I said, well, where is he? I want to talk to him. I don't care. I'll talk to anyone. So give me his number. I'll find this guy. And they say, well, sadly, his son was killed in a crash, and he kind of walked away from it, and nobody really talks to him anymore. I was like, well, that sucks. Okay. You know, maybe whatever. I just put it in the back of my head. So I'm, I'm practicing in Mons, France, and I see this. There's this bridge. It's like looks like a painting like some sort of like Van Gogh painting or something. And I see this guy down there making these super long casts, floating his cider, single fly, like very technical fishing, nymphing. I'm like, that guy's good. He's also like 65. I'm like, if, if the old guys are this good in France, we're going to get killed out here for sure. <laughs> so I walk down there and I say, hey, what, my name's Paul. I'm from the United States. What is your name? The guy says, Jan Ostier. I was like, no, no shit. Way. No way. No way. So I tell him, like, sir, I'm a fan of yours. He says, you don't know who I am. I said, I, I do. So I kind of rattle off some facts I knew and got his attention. I said, I'd like to pay you to take me fishing tomorrow and my team. He says, okay, I'll do that. And so what he tells me is, to preface the story, what our style at Team USA was, you get three hours to fish a beat, which is a section of river. It's a picket, 100 yards, whatever they set. So whoever catches the most fish wins. They do five sessions, whatever. Anyway, you get a set amount of water. If it's dry fly water and you don't like dry fly fishing, you lose. So you got to be versatile. Our style was to put a fly in every inch of the water. So I'm like, well, if I cover all my water, I'm going to win. What Jan Ostier said was a water or the water we suit the best water that we should spend the most of our time is, is dependent on insect activity. I said, excuse what? I said, back up. So he says, let me explain it. We were in a bend of a river, a big inside bend. 
And obviously the inside bend is beautiful, like dry dropper, nymph and whatever. That's where the fish are at. And the outside bend, you only have the little sliver on the, on the bank where it's good. And he says, where would you spend 80% of your time if you had 30 minutes? Collectively, all of us would spend it on the inside bend. It's just sexy looking trout water. We've caught, you've caught, everyone's caught millions of fish there. He said, if there are bugs hatching, are hatching, they'll be on the inside because that's the easiest place for them to get the most food. If bugs are not hatching, they'll be on the outside because that's where the majority of the little bit of food that's available is there. And I said, okay, I think I understand. So I fish it. Bugs were not hatching. I catch one on the inside, four on the outside. We go up through fishing. There was a Danica hatch, which I called mayflies. He said, no, mayflies are flies that hatch in May, which was funny. But (laughs) so as we go fishing, the bugs start to move and we go back to that spot. And he says, now fish the same thing. And this time I caught four fish on the inside and one on the outside. And I was like, interesting. How it applied to pocket water was when bugs were hatching, the pocket water was very good. When bugs weren't hatching, it was not so good. So I was like, okay, now I'm starting to see if you and I are equal anglers, if I spend more time in higher probability water, I win. So then we started creating, I didn't tell anybody about it at the time. Now it doesn't matter, but you know, that was kind of that and this kind of team metal mentality. Like we went for the team win, the cumulative win. So we were encouraging sharing and we knew that a water was dependent on insect activity. So we could prioritize the amount of time we spent in each place. And what's interesting is, is if you're kind of in tune with it, if you're nymphing fish on the bottom, all of a sudden they start eating medium or shallow or even rising, you know that there's preemptively that there's bugs moving and you can start to adjust where you're spending your time. And three hours goes by really quickly. And that was really, I could talk about it for seven hours, but that was the foundation of what resulted in, you know, a dozen gold medals collectively and team medals and everything else. With those kids, uh, where were, where were most of those kids from? Were they, a lot of them were from North Carolina, right? I know there were some really hot anglers, (laughs) young, young youth anglers from North Carolina, but, um, Mm -hmm. were they from all over the place or where they were? Yeah. So the team USA team at the time, which I suppose it still is, was set up to where we would have regionals and then we would have clinics and then regionals and then the nationals. And then we would pick the team. So I would typically do a regional in like Montana, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Idaho to give them the opportunity to see the talent. And what I would do, and I still do, like I still go once a year to like teach kind of the the stuff I've learned over the years, but I would give them all this knowledge, let them apply it. And then they would grow and come back because the, you know, early on that knowledge gain isn't a little bit, it's tremendous advances in your ability. And then when you get to the very highest level, it's little tiny things that matter uh, that make the difference in winning or losing. But generally there was a lot of, you know, I'd say Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and Colorado were kind of the hotbeds. Um, And then, you know, there's, there's an element of, there's no way to describe it, but just fishiness. And you've seen it. Like there's just an element mm-hmm. of fishiness that some people like, I'm never going to win the Boston marathon. I weigh 260 pounds. It's not going to happen. <laughs> some people just don't see water. You've been, you've seen that guiding. They don't see it. You've been in the boat all day. They don't know the edge from the moon. Like they just don't see it. Right. And that's fine. That's what you're there for or me or anybody else. But I would look at the kids that could take that knowledge, apply it, had a level of fishiness. And then also, you know, we taught a lot of kind of short memory stuff. Like I didn't want kids getting too heady. Like they drop a fish, they lose a fish. And this is kind of unpopular. And I'll say this, like, I love trout. It's changed my life, but a trout is not the smartest animal on the planet, nor is it the hardest to catch. I'm here to tell you, I love trout. I trout fish all the time, but a trout is a very simple creature. His brain's the size of a fruit loop. Like if you do it right, he responds well and, you know, have a short memory. We never freaked out. We tried to just fish clean and, you know, visualize. We visualize a lot of mistakes and stuff because that's where a lot of people get messed up is they make a mistake and they spin out. They go to their first spot and they miss one or whatever. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it permit fishing. A guy 
I don't want to say where, but in the middle keys, we were on a really popular permit place. A guy finally got a shot after all day and he hauled too hard, pushed the rod loop collapses, big problem. And he gets all spun out. Like it's over. I'm like, dude, incoming. We saw one, like get in the game, bro. Like, yeah, they don't live in North Carolina, like stay on it. And then he ended up catching one. So, you know, it's just like anything else. You don't know when it's going to happen. You just got to put yourself in the best possible place in time you can. What do you think about, uh, can, can you learn to be fishy or is it innate or is it experience? And I mean, like you say, there's just some people that just don't see it. And I fish with those people for years and years and years. And man, it doesn't get any better for some of them. Other people, maybe, you know, they get to be a little better. Um, but I just wonder about, you know, have you seen somebody that is not that fishy, which is kind of when we're talking about fishy for the people that may not uh, understand this. It's just like a you can be in the same place. You can be using the same flies, but one guy's catching them and the other guy's not. And you're doing things exactly the same. Or maybe they get a little bit more creative or maybe I don't know. They just usually catch a fish or two more than everybody else. They're just kind of fishy, gritty, really. And, uh, in your opinion, do you think that you can, you can, uh, learn that or, or, uh, cultivate that? Or is it something that some people have and other people don't? Uh, it's probably unpopular, but I'd say 90% of the time you have it or you don't. So I think you can get better at anything. So there's that rule of a hundred or whatever everybody talks about. Like you do a hundred hours of whatever, I think it's 18 minutes a day doing something. You can be better than 95% of the world. And that's encouraging if you read that on TikTok, and that's fine. But when you're competing at the highest level at the World Championships, you, the nine, the five percent that are good at it are present at that tournament. So, mm-hmm. like, want to matters a lot. Like, you know, I want to be good, but there's always something a little different. So I guess it depends on what your litmus test is. Like, can everybody win a World Championships? Absolutely not. Can somebody dedicate their entire life and win? a bunch of gold cups. Honestly, probably not. Like you're going to have to have something pretty special. And, you know, again, it goes back to Larry, like tactics, mechanics, and strategy. Like, could I, could you teach someone mechanically how to make great casts in the wind? Yes. Could you tell them the tactics to catching migratory tarpon on in the keys? Of course you can, but do they have a strategy? Like, do they really have the ability? It's that fishiness Larry calls it your fishbone. If your fishbone mm-hmm. isn't tingling, do something else. <laughs> like, and he says it all the time. Like, if something's not working, look for fish with your big motor. Like, change your zip code. Just start riding around until something feels right. I was like, I don't know what I'm looking for. He's like, you'll know it when you find it. So, a lot of that comes down to experience and trust and time on the water. And, you know, I think anglers are generally like, me and Mac used to joke, there's like, uh, plumbers, poets, and engineers. It's like engineers just want to know, you know, forces, mass and acceleration. They're, they're nerds. I got a little of that in me too. There's plumbers that are just like, I don't need a TCX. I can do it with this other rod. And then there's poets. They don't really know exactly why they stopped on that particular sandbar. They haven't fished it in 20 years, but 20 minutes later, a 20 deep string come rolling by. That's, that's one of those things where the more you fish, the more you trust your instinct and the process if it's not happening like i'm not a grinder i'm not a guy that's just going to be like well you know i'm at i don't know i don't want, want to name spots but i'm on the corner of some place and they'll come through here eventually not really my style like i know they're there somewhere i'm, I'm always kind of another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My wheels are always turning more than most people's. It's just a different, different kind of grinding. Different. 
that's just a that's just a different kind of grinding. Let me ask you this: um, I've never competed at, in the Team USA or or any of the international competitions, but I mean, I have been in fly fishing competitions like the Great Outdoor Games and things like that. And certainly, you know, in the in the outfit in Jackson, Wyoming, uh, you got twenty guides there, and you're you're always constantly competing to be the best um with other guides like uh i know that you fish with my friend pete erickson oh yeah um he was he was right there in our in our circle and and um so there's a lot of competition and you're competing to be the best guide you're competing to be the best angler but what's the difference between that level of of angling and guiding and what goes on at the international level like what is what what's the difference what's the separator there I think um, two things come to mind. So the first thing is there is rules and restrictions. So the mm-hmm. international organization is called FIPS Moosh, and they control all the rules or whatever. And I actually got to be the general secretary of that, which that's a whole other story. But so I got to see the inside <laughs> of it. But so you can't use a strike indicator. Do I agree with that personally? No. I think any legal method should be legal. It's angling, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. as a tournament guy, you have to use like a straight piece of cider, like colored mono for your leader. You can't use a strike indicator. You can't use split shot. And to me, I always thought that was kind of BS because you look at a guy like Joe Humphreys or gosh, I could name a half a dozen people from Pennsylvania and they are the finest split shot anglers on the planet earth period. Like they are so, so good. Why limit ourselves? So some of it is a cultural thing. Like if you go from I don't know who's around, but back in the day, like Worldcast and Dawes and that whole crew was like the hammers in the valley. You take those guys over, they know as much about trout as any Czech or French or Polish, but there's a limitation because they're not allowed to fish their way. So you have to learn mm-hmm. the the style. Ultimately, that makes you better, and then you can apply that to indicator fishing or whatever. But, yeah, I think that's the first part is – Yes. Could they compete? Yes. Is there a big difference? No. The biggest thing is, is a willingness, A, the stylistic difference, and then B, there's nothing you lose more in than fishing other than golf. Mm-hmm. As a, and I bass fish a lot in tournaments now, like you lose a lot. And some people just aren't willing to lose. And honestly, some people aren't willing. This sounds terrible, but there's guys I know that you know, they just started guide and they come from wherever they come from They're year two or three, like they're in their mind, they're legends. And to go out and to lose to somebody would prove that maybe they don't know as much as they think oh, yeah. they do. Now the guys oh, at the 100%. top level, we don't care. Like I never did it for ego. Like I'll be the first one I could name for the next hour. I could name fishermen better than me. So I didn't do it for myself. That's why I don't, I don't write books. I don't typically get on podcasts. Like that's not what I did it for, but a lot of those guys, I've said to them, like, I don't want to say who, but one guy we have locally that's really hot on himself, I said, hey, man, and he always says, I could easily beat those guys. And I was like, you have the opportunity anytime you yeah. want to. Like, you want to go fish the Brown or the Gold Cup? If you think you can catch more permit or tarpon than everyone else, Florida's open. You can go down there right now. They'll let you in. And you can prove yeah. it. I don't because I know better. On the fly side, like, I did it. I liked it. I enjoyed it. And it got me better. I like the fraternity, but I don't think that the other glaring difference too is, and this is something nobody will talk about often, and I will, is you get squirrely situations in worlds. And what I mean specifically is uh, pick a random country, whatever, Bosnia, right? We have a tournament in Bosnia. Bosnia wants to represent the country well, so oftentimes they will stock the water. Mm. That causes a huge problem. I'd rather it be wild fish because then it's even. If they throw fish at a bridge and you catch 100 and I catch two, that constantly happens in some tournaments. Now, you go to places with good populations of trout, France, Italy, uh, Ireland, where they don't stock. Like You have a fair tournament. But it's also a fact that you can go and you can do everything right. You can make no mistakes and you can lose. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. And there's a little, I think there's luck involved in any tournament, but you know, when you're limiting somebody to a beat a river and it's a random draw, you have, you run the risk of just getting really crappy beat draws and there's nothing you can do about it. Period. Yeah. But the thing that you have to do is that one, you have to be ready 
and versatile enough and experienced enough and knowledgeable enough that when you do get the beat, uh, you, you draw the right beat. Gotta win. That you win. You have to. That you win. And that's, you have to, because it's only going to happen every now and then. You know what's also interesting, and I love talking about this, um, uh, nobody else likes to hear it, but the, the rules that you were just talking about, like you can't use split shot and you can't use this and that, can't use indicators. Well, there's a, probably a pretty high likelihood, and I don't know this, but there's probably a pretty high likelihood that at one point somebody won using those methods. And they said, okay, no more split shot. You cannot use split shot anymore. And then somebody said, okay, cool. I'll just tie heavier flies. And then they used a strike indicator and they won. And I'm not saying that that happened in international competition, but stuff like that happens in saltwater tournaments all the time. And they'll, somebody will come in with a new uh, method that it, the, they looked at the rules. The rules don't say that you can't use trolling motors. So somebody uses a trolling motor, they win, and people say, oh, no, you can't use trolling motors. No, 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 we'll never be able to do that again because they didn't have a trolling motor or they weren't smart enough to figure out to use a trolling motor. Okay, so now no trolling motors. Okay, then you're going to, you know, switch boats in a tournament or something like that. On day one, you fish in a little bitty boat. On day two, you fish in a bigger boat so you can fish different water. Okay, they win. Okay, you can't do that anymore. And then it's one thing after another, one thing after another. And so people are saying, you know, they'll put these rules in. Well, the really good fishermen will learn how to fish that style now. So the fact that you can't chum in a tournament anymore. Okay, well, that leads to the booger rig. Okay, so now, now they, they figure out, well, what is chumming? Chumming is, is broadcasting little pieces of shrimp or, or using a chum bag or doing something else. Well, what if I take a, piece, take a shrimp and put 20 pieces up the line like that and throw it out there? Okay, that's the booger rig. That's responsible for some of the biggest bonefish ever caught in the world on the booger rig. Well, no one would have ever thought to use that had it not been made illegal to chum in a, in a tournament. Right. So every rule that gets put in only elevates the anglers and only elevates the sport. And it's exactly the opposite of what the rule was placed there for. Right. Oh, that's not fair. We're not going to do that again. But the best, those two percent of the anglers will figure out, Okay, well, that's obviously how you catch them. So how can I do that and still be in compliance with the rules? And then they do it again and win that way. Oh, well, now you can't booger rig. And now you can't do this. And now you can't do that. You're not going to stop the best anglers. You're not going to stop them from winning by changing a rule. They're only going to figure out how to fish around that rule or fish in compliance with the, with the, with the rules and still be able to beat the other people who are just basically participating. Right? And... It's, it's interesting to see that because I just see the rules in the tournaments. They just keep trying to change to give everybody, you know, to, to, they're saying to keep the playing field level, but all they're doing is making the sport more and more and more competitive to where a smaller percentage of the anglers are winning. And it's not, it's not open for everybody anymore. It's the people that are going to dedicate their life to it, that are going to be thinking about it 24-7, that are going to go out there and try to figure out a way to be in compliance with the rules, whether they're tying heavier flies to, to a, and they have every possible uh, weight of fly, so they don't have to use split shots, right? They've, it's tied in there, and they know how to do that, and they know exactly how much every fly weighs. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's that type of thing to where it only becomes more and more and more competitive. And uh, I've, I've just seen it happen a bunch of times in, in the saltwater tournaments. I think it is exact. It's an astute observation. It's the exact, it's the exact thing. And it's the, the best always win. And, you know, people that are, I guess, speaking to the fly fishing side that are misinformed will say, well, Phipps Moose is a bunch of old guys. And anything that's not the purity of throwing a dry fly only, they don't want. That's not exactly true. Like, you're right. They're, they're always whittling down this thing. And frankly, it's their job. They meet about it and talk about it. Like, their job is to, quote, unquote, make it fair. There, there's, a, there's a hint of cultural stuff there, too. Like, often they will put a dry fly only section or whatever. And I can remember two things that come to mind. I remember doing this, uh, the fly fishing shows or whatever that used to go around. I was up in wherever it was, Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or one of them. 
And I had a guy like really giving me crap about European nymphing being like too effective and like how his way of dry fly fishing was more <laughs> too pure. effective. Seriously, it was more <laughs> pure or whatever. And I said, listen, like, I want to be honest. I told the whole, it's probably a hundred to 150 people. I was doing like a European nymphing thing or whatever. And I say, listen, there is nothing about catching a fish that is good for it. Now we could argue less putting trackers in. Yeah. I get all that. Like there's always a, but, but generally speaking, like, can we agree that like, we like this, therefore we are going to do it. I am fishing. If we want to really get to the brass tacks on it, like I'm fishing a, super sharp wheat barbless panic like hook it's as painless as possible i net them instantly release them instantly versus the guy that gets hooked in the face with the daiichi and he's wedging it out with his forceps and it's like i'm never going to tell somebody that they're what their method of angling is right or wrong like do i like gill nets absolutely not like do you want to use a trolling motor sure but there's cultural things like as a guy that loves the game there's cultural things that you have to just acknowledge a thing that comes to mind. I remember, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, do you know Rusty Albury? Oh yeah. So Rusty, I'm coming down years ago with Frank Crescitelli and I have a little tarpon boat, a skiff, like a old, it sucked, but it was workable. And I talked to Rusty and I'm like, Hey, I'm coming down by myself. I'm coming to Isla Mirada. I'm fishing Florida Bay. I'm not looking for like secrets or nothing. I'm going to come figure some stuff out for a week. So he tells me, hey, uh, you can use my boat ramp. I'm like, cool, the Lorelei. Now, as a guy coming from North Carolina, I didn't understand <laughs> the rules. So I pull up down there, and I notice that everybody does not have a trolling motor. And I instantly get jumped on by some people asking why was these North Carolina tags at the Lorelei. We ended up getting it sorted out with Rusty. I had a key, whatever. But what I started to learn in the Keys was there is a cultural thing in the Keys. There's a cultural thing about who's earned, and I say that because that's true, who earned the right to launch at the Lorelei. There's a cultural mm-hmm. thing about, like, even if you're fishing by yourself, I had a trolling motor, but I try to be observant. I didn't put it on. I was like, I want to push myself to these. I haven't earned the right to troll around. I don't want to say the places, not that they're secret, but, you know, these famous places, I'm going to do it. You know, it was just out of respect for the game. So I left the trolling motor in the truck. It's a cultural right. thing in anything. And I think you should be aware of it. Like it's no different in Phipps Moosh. It's no different than I understood my role in the whole scene as an outsider launching at the Lorelei. Like you just have to be aware of those things. And if you love the game, you should be. It's no different than if you come down in a pick a whatever world cast anglers boat, and I'm on the juice and you're working and I'm not, I'm going to give you the respect to go in front of me because you're working. Just like I got off the sandbar because that guy mm-hmm. was clearly working. and He wasn't rude. He didn't push me off, didn't say anything. I was like, I'm out of here. He had two people. I knew what he was doing. Like, it wasn't my first day around. And I bailed out and went and looked somewhere else. I just went red fishing. I didn't have anything else. So I just checked the lease side of some stuff and got on some other things and bailed out. But... Well, that's that's great etiquette, and that's being that's being respectful of of those who are who are making a living at it, and uh, and that's great. Although everybody does have a place out there, and sure. and I think that you find that uh, people are giving you more more uh, respect as you give other people more respect as well. So that is a that's a that's a good uh, mo. Before we before we get too far into this, I want to talk about your media business too. So your media business starts. By filming this this uh, fly fishing tournament in North Carolina, correct. And then where does it go from there? So, this sounds sappy or cheesy, but I had this vision one day. Well, I was brook trout fishing, and I realized that the things I saw that day mm. would never happen that way again. Even if you and I brook trout fished a hundred days yeah. in a row, that day was unique to itself. I thought, man, I'd love to be able to document this. So. I started shooting photos and videos and just emulating people that I liked, you know, like it wasn't always fishing people, but it was, you know, rock climbing people or whoever, like the art of flight was coming out. There was all kinds of cool stuff happening. Um, I just started filming and just being honest and saying that sucks. How do I make it better? And starting to tell fishing stories. And then, you know, ultimately that led into fly fishing film tour stuff and some TV show stuff. And then, 
ultimately, gosh, I'll skip a whole bunch, but I found myself six or seven years in advising brands on kind of marketing and branding stuff as a way to get my foot in the door to shoot the content. And it took me, don't ask me why, but it took me eight years to realize that what I should have been doing was really advising them on the branding and the marketing stuff. The content was secondary, but I would give them that knowledge for free on how to like, how to distribute the content, how to build like meaningful brand stories and stuff in the hopes that they would give me the content. But as you know, and every content guy knows, like once you're done with the content, let's, you know, your guy's safe because you do a ton of media, which I commend you on. But most brands just need you when they need you. So you're always chasing the next job. Right. Um, over time, I started working more as kind of a marketer, kind of a brand and brand work. And, you know, that's how it kind of shook out over about seven or eight years. All right, that's a great conversation with Paul Bork, and we are just getting started. The conversation lasted much longer than normal. He had a lot of time. We were able to get a lot of advice from him. And so this is the end of part one. Come back next week for part two with Paul Bork. Paul Bork.